0: stepping into our next panel. This panel is just transition on the Gulf Coast. And I think we have Jenny as the moderator for this. I would like to invite her to the screen so she can introduce this next panel. Thank you,
1: Jason. Wow. Welcome to the Just Panel discussion. Uh, what a powerful, centered, and insightful gathering it's been so far. huh? Just amazing. Um, in this panel, we'll explore organizing and mobilizing in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, it's, an, it's an obvious sacrifice zone for the fossil fuel industry, uh, drilling rigs, petrochemical plants, refineries, and more, covering both water and coastal lands from Texas to Alabama, leaving only Florida free of drilling. My name is Jenny Spanos and I'm a national co-director for the Move to Amend Coalition. Our coalition centralizes social, economic and environmental justice, and is dedicated to ending corporate rule while cultivating a world we all deserve. One of the tools we use is the We the People Amendment. It's introduced in the 117th Congress as House Joint Resolution 48, and it currently has 98 co-sponsors. The amendment just makes clear that corporations are not people and that money is not free speech and it should be regulated and shall be regulated in our elections. I'm joining from the ancestral lands of the Appalachian Nation, the Muscogee Nation, Miccosukee Tribes of Pensacola, which is located on the beautiful Emerald Coast in the Gulf at the tip of Florida Panhandle and is a central part of the largest military test range in the world. When we say gathering, that this gathering is radical, As you know, what we mean is for getting to the roots of our problems and opportunities for thinking outside of the realm of what's been taught and what we've been taught to believe is possible. It's also to explore big questions and unsettling truths. The gathering is a chance to learn and teach each other, to meet other people doing their part of the work and to practice some skills we'll surely need. And it is that spirit that I'm honored and i uh, grateful to introduce our panelists, uh, Rochetta, Michael, Christian, and Ricky. Rochetta Ozane is Healthy Gulf's clean energy organizer, bringing communities together to stop the build out of petrochemical and fracked gas export facilities in the Southeast Texas and Southwest Louisiana areas. She's serving as she leads fellow for Power Coalition where she empowers other women of color to go into their communities and make positive change. She is the founder of the Vessel Project of Louisiana, a small mutual aid organization located in Southwest Louisiana that was founded in the aftermath of several federally declared natural disasters that ravaged the Southwest in Louisiana. Welcome, Rochetta. Michael Iskaluca is Gulf Coast Louisiana organizer. She works on the frontline communities to fight unchecked gas oil petrochemical expansion while uplifting grassroots struggles for clean air, healthy jobs, and the rights to thrive. She is a leader in the Gulf South for Green New Deal, a co-founder of Louisiana Just Recovery, and serves as a board member for the True Transition, an advocacy organization developing policies for just energy transition, based on the needs and experience of fossil fuel workers. Welcome. And Christian Wagley. He works to protect water quality, create a healthy energy future, and improve coastal resiliency in communities along the Florida Panhandle and Southeast Alabama. He recently, uh, some of his previous work experience includes land use planning, green building, uh, clean energy advocacy, and connecting with community design and water quality. And last but not least is Dr. Ricky Odd She's a marine biologist, former Alaska commercial fisherman who founded uh, her path. She found her path and voice during the transformable crucible at the Exxon Valley's oil spill. Accomplished in civil activism and grassroots engagement, she inspires youth and adults in accessible science and civic-based trainings, and with stories to engage people in working together towards a healthy democracy and a healthy energy future. Dr. Ricky Ott currently directs two projects through Earth Island Institute and the Alert Project and Ultimate Civics. And Ricky is also one of the original co-founders to move to amend. Welcome all. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your work and knowledge with us. As we open up the conversation, um, please describe some of the aspects of your work and how you see the impacts on the community. And I asked while you're doing that to describe where you do most of your work. What's the natural landscape, the water, the people, the community, and the culture? Um, would you like to start us off, Rashida?
2: Hi everyone, as she said, I'm Rochetta Ozan. I'm the Clean Energy Organizing Director for Southwest Louisiana and Southeast Texas with Healthy Gulf and also the founder of the Vessel Project of Louisiana. Um, my, My daily objective is to highlight the intersectionalities of environmental injustices, climate injustices, and social injustices and how all of those things are linked together. How uh, communities of color, um, specifically um, BIPOC communities, are the, the ones who face, uh, face the most issues every day, whether that's uh, environmental health, um, low income housing, all of those things, and how they directly um, relate to the infrastructure and industry that's uh, in these areas. Southwest Louisiana and Southeast Texas is overflowing with petrochem facilities. And um, now we have several new uh, LNG sites that are proposed to come here. We already are still um, recovering from Hurricanes Laura and Hurricanes Delta, a flood, a tornado, and an ice storm. And yet uh, we're back in hurricane season. Folks still haven't come home from those things. But yet you have facilities like driftwood lng that is coming up right now they've already began construction you have plans proposed like commonwealth and we're we're at the point of asking when is enough enough where are these uh, new sites going to go and why is it that they continue to affect the same communities over and over why are these communities continuously getting The short end of the stick and the answer is because long ago communities of color specifically were made sacrificial lambs for um you know or a dumping site a dumping ground nothing was put there in those communities to uplift them to empower them um and then whenever resources and funding were supposed to go in those communities it never made its, its way down to those communities and so people like myself and Michael and other community organizers are saying that we live in these communities and we're fighting for these communities and doing everything that we can and the way that I do that fight every day is to ensure that community members get their most essential needs met. And I meet those needs by providing them with things like safe drinking water, providing them with food to eat. I, I have a, a feeding program that I do every day, Monday through Friday, it right directly in that community. And it's sponsored by organizations like um, the Power Coalition and the Sierra Club. And so that's how I tie the work, against, fighting against oil and gas and petrochem and to directly assisting those community members, because you can't go into a community and ask them to do something for you and truly care about the needs of those uh, folks in those communities without providing them with some of those needs and helping them meet the needs. I can't come to your home where you can't afford to pay your life bill or your children are hungry and ask you to fight against oil and gas when you see oil and gas as the biggest employer in your community. And so that's the type of facade that has been put up. You know, these oil and gas industries say, well, we're going to hire local folks. We're going to invest in local infrastructure. We're going to build this. We're going to bring that. But then we see that that's a lie because when you look at these communities, they are the poorest communities. They are the unhealthiest communities. They are food deserts. The folks that are living in those communities don't work at those facilities. And so um, we're myself, like I said, community uh, organizers clean energy organizers folks who are on the grounds and on the front lines those are the things that we are fighting against if you're going to be here if we if, if the, the facilities that are here if they're going to be here they're going to be in compliance they're going to provide resources for the community uh, members and we're going to make sure that they aren't uh, harming those communities anymore but at the same time fighting against more industry coming and showing up to hearings and and commenting during comment periods. And so those are the type of messages, you know, that I put out to folks because everybody likes to ask the question, how are you gonna get these industries shut down or when they're shut down, what's gonna happen to the buildings? And so uh, we tell them, you know, it's a longer fight to, to try to get one shut down. But what we're trying to do is to stop the, one, the new ones from coming and then we can focus on the ones that are already here. So that's what I do every day. I'm a mom of six. You probably hear my four year old in the background. It's been a very long day for us. I had a big community event today um, for some of the males in the community. And then uh, I took him to see the dinosaurs because all week long I've been doing toxic tours and environmental justice tours. And so I tried to spend a little time with him today, but I wanted to be on this panel because I think it's so important that frontline folks are included and that frontline folks are telling the stories. And that also that frontline folks are um, supported and we get the resources and the funding that we need to continue this fight. And also to continue to push the issue that this is not a singular fight. And we have to continue to highlight the intersectionalities of everything, like I pointed out in the beginning. We can't fight industry without fighting for folks to have clean water, without fighting for folks to have food, without ensuring that people can care for their children, without ensuring that people have safe homes. So we have to start connecting all of those things together, getting folks out to vote. Holding elected officials accountable, attending city council meetings, attending school board meetings, and that's how we fight this, and that's how we do it together. So thank you all for having me here. I mostly do my work in Southwest Louisiana and Southeast Texas. That's what I like to say because uh, a lot of people, you know, know about New Orleans, the New Orleans area, because it's a you know a big city, a, a tourist city in Louisiana, and they forget about. Areas like Lake Charles and Sulphur and Westlake, but that's where all the industry is in Southwest Louisiana. And so I don't like to point out a particular city in Southwest Louisiana because I want to make sure that they're all included. And in Southeast Texas, we know that Port Arthur, predominantly Black community. They were the last to get any sort of resources after Hurricane Harvey. And some of those folks in that community still have not received funds to help rebuild And So those are the communities that I fight for every day. And that's why I work every day uh, along the Gulf Coast in Southwest Louisiana and Southeast Texas.
1: Awesome, thank you so much, Rochetta. I'm so glad you're here. Um, Hi, Michael. I'm glad you were able to get back on. Um, We're just rolling through with a prompt to describe um, aspects of your work, how you see the impacts on the community, um, and while you're doing that, describe the places where you do the most work, um, you know, like your natural landscape, the water, the people, the communities, and the culture that are directly impacted by the work that you're doing. Um, You want to go ahead and go next, and then we'll go to Ricky
0: for sure yeah thank you all so much for having me and for for listening it's rare i think this late in the pandemic that we get over 50 people on a webinar so congrats to y'all for for taking the time out of your saturday to be here um and i you know i agree with everything that Rochetta says i would say i i do similar work as her but just on the other end of the states so southeast louisiana i live in new orleans but i work across five parishes or counties I work along the Mississippi River, which is the traditional sort of industrial corridor where most of the oil, gas and petrochemical industry is here in Louisiana, um, at least in the Southeast part. And then I also work down in the Bayou, working with indigenous communities and other coastal folks trying to enhance coastal resilience and figure out how we can fight for clean air, clean water and the right to thrive, which we at Healthy Gulf believe is the basic right of all communities. So I started uh, the day of the governor shutdown order um, in 2020, March, 2020. So it's been an interesting challenge figuring out how to organize and connect with communities who are dealing with the greatest impacts from this climate crisis, at least as far as the South Louisiana is concerned, um, while also not having regular access to like public meetings um, and helping people figure out how to use Zoom and Twitter and Instagram and all the different other social media platforms that we use to communicate these days. Um, So I, mostly my job, and I think most folks at Healthy Gulf understand our role as a supportive organization. So we believe that the natural resources of the Gulf of Mexico region need to be preserved. We believe that the communities who depend on the Gulf need to be fought for and need to have the right to thrive and we also just like we see the picture clearly we cannot continue to rely on the oil gas and petrochemical industries and think that there's going to be a just and verdant future for us so we work with communities across the gulf to figure out how to transition our economy and our energy systems away from exploitation and extraction and towards regeneration whether that's farming, whether that's fishing and, and trapping similar industries that we had in the history of Louisiana, or it's new stuff like solar farms. Um, and Christian will talk a little bit more later in this panel about the specific work that he does around energy transition in the Florida Panhandle. Um, but I'll talk about some of the work that I do in Southeast Louisiana. Um, like I said, I work across five uh, Southeast Louisiana parishes mostly what I'm doing is providing communications tools, coalition building tools, and then connecting folks with resources to provide technical and scientific tools to figure out what exactly is happening to communities right now, and what is their vision for the future, and then thirdly, how do we realize that? So I work in Cancer Alley, which is Known by some but not all, it's the traditional industrial corridor between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, where there's over 200 chemical plants, oil refineries, and pipelines. Um, And along the Mississippi River, most of those communities are historically black or they're poor white communities. Um, And they've seen the greatest burdens from environmental degradation and industrial pollution, but they have not seen the benefits. They do not get jobs, uh, whether it's in construction of facilities or the operation of facilities, but they have to live next door to them every day. And so I've, uh, you know, Healthy Gulf has worked with the community of St. James, um, where Rye St. James and Inclusive Louisiana and other groups, um, but those are the two main ones leaving the fight, have been battling against the Formosa Plastics facility. Um, an, industri- uh, an international industrial corporation that wants to come in and build one of the world's largest pastri- uh, plastics like complexes um, and in a, in a place where there's already over a dozen industrial facilities. I also work down in Plaquemines Parish which is where the Mississippi River opens up into the Gulf of Mexico. And Healthy Gulf has been working with a historic black community down there called Ironton for almost a decade, I've been working with them for about two years since I started and they have successfully defeated a coal terminal and now an oil terminal that both threatened to build on top of the grave sites of their ancestors. And so the work that we're doing, we're we're fighting for the future of our communities, we're fighting for their present day safety, um, but we're also fighting to preserve their history, which can get washed away in storms or overlooked. Um, so I'm really proud of the work that we're doing. I'm really proud of the work that we have ahead of us. Um, excited to to talk to dive in a little bit more deep about uh, some of the questions that we're gonna be asked today around just transition um, and a regenerative economy that we're hoping to build. But um, that's just a little bit of a bio for me and I will pass it back over to Jenny.
1: Thank you so much, Michael. We're so honored to have
3: you here. Hey, Ricky. You're on uh, mute, one second. There we go. Okay, thank you. Status quo when I'm an oil company with oil industry people. Ricky's on mute. (laughs) Um, So um, thank you all. Um, I wanna thank my past and present teachers, two-legged, four-legged others. Uh, You know who you are. And I also wanna thank my future teachers who are sitting all before you on this panel. I'm Rogetta Christian Michael. Jenny, so um, thank you for this opportunity. Um, you know, when I was listening to Rochetta and she said, um, you know, the people come into your home and they ask us to fight for them. And that's like, I was like, wow, that's like the opposite of what I do. So uh, up in Alaska, we had the Exxon Valdez oil spill in 1989. And fast forward 21 years, we lost in court. Um, we got paid 10 cents on the dollar. Some of my commercial fishing friends um, actually went bankrupt 20 years after the fact. Um, but I'm not kidding. I was on tour with a move to amend in the lower 48. Um, and I know you said to describe the place where you love and the place where you work. And that definitely is Alaska for me. But anyway, um, it's cold. <laughs> I like it cold. Um, So I was on tour with Move to Amend and I saw um, the uh, the newspaper, um, the BP well blow out in the Gulf, it was 2010. And I just went, oh, I can't go through this again. Um, And it took me about a week to come out of sort of my own sort of personal trauma. And um, I realized, well, all those people down there are gonna make all the same mistakes we made unless somebody goes and coaches. So I went, I went down with a one-way ticket, um, not knowing anybody really. And um, I, the very first day, I ran into the Louisiana Shrimp Association down in Venice, Louisiana. And they said, well, you're from Alaska. What are you doing here? I said, well, I'd like to talk to the fishermen. And things just blossomed from there. I ended up spending an entire year, not a month, like I was planning. Um, I ended up going back for six of the next years, sort of dancing around your hurricane seasons. Um, and what came out of that was an amazing um, uh, thing for me. One, I was when I went back and forth across the Gulf to all these communities that wanted me to sneak, the small ones, the rural ones, where this was happening to people, making people sick, this oil spill, this BP well blowout you know, Ms. Ricky, what's in the air? What's in the water? What are what's these dispersants? Um, I just shared what we had done in Alaska. And, and then I would let people kind of figure out what the next steps were based on what we had learned. And I would support that. And I remember saying at one community, I think that was one of my bigger ones in Mobile. I will fight with you, but I will not lead you. Um, and in the in the next couple of years, as the oil spill trauma, you know, got more under control, um, and I was still there, people were like, "Well, Miss Ricky, aren't these same chemicals that we were exposed to during the BP oil disaster? Aren't these right here coming out of our refinery as well and in the air? I mean, aren't they're just lower levels of them, but they're still making us sick?" And I was like, "Yes, absolutely." And people asked me in community after community, from the western Panhandle all the way to Texas, could you please help us understand what these chemicals are, you know what they 're doing to our bodies, how we get them out of our bodies and uh, out of our communities and out of our homes, um, how can we do, reduce these toxic exposures so that uh, I, I was you know listening to other panels, and I heard um, one of the speakers talk about intellectual arrogance. And I, I'm hoping I don't have that. Um, I have never worked so hard on 21 slides and uh, a toxic trespass training manual um, in my life. And that's because I did it in um, um, Hispanic community and an African American community in Texas. Um, and um, I'm happy to say that people were so comfortable with me that they could actually say things like, like Yvette Ariana did, and she now has the Fence Line Watch organization. Miss Ricky, I don't mean to be rude, but I just don't understand this slide. And uh, we worked, you know, with me listening and until we got the slides right. And two weeks after I left that community, I was in Mobile testing the program with uh, another historically black community in Mobile. Uh, um, And the folks in, Texas called and said, well, can we just give a community meeting now with this training? And I was like, well, that's what I had hoped would happen. It's kind of like do it yourself, right? Once, once you have the tools. Um, and they said, we thought you would say that. And uh, it's been a very, very positive and humbling experience at the same time. I mean, people have their voices. They just need some tools every now and then to, um, to you know, sort of play this game we're corralled into. Um, with the legal system. So um, the toxic trespass training work is available on my website, alertproject.org. Um, up until Trump got elected, I was regularly going back and forth across the Gulf Coast um, uh, doing trainings and helping with the with the EJ leadership. Um, um, but then I switched to my next project, which I'll get to in a second. Um, so that's on the alertproject.org website, as is the Health advocacy guide, which is what we're dealing with here is chemical exposures, and chemical exposures can mimic colds and flu. I am not kidding. Your body only has so many ways to say, you know, there's an early warning system here built in that you're sick and it's colds and flus. But if the colds and flus last one year, five years, 13 years after Exxon Valdez, for example, it's not colds and flu, it's chemical illnesses. And the sooner you get these poisons out of your body, and out of your community, uh, because once you breathe toxic air, it's like your rain barrel is filling back up again. Um, but you can, um, the less damage they'll do. Um, so the health advocacy guide is how you put your information together. And it's a, it can be a community process even, because usually if it's chemical poisoning from the air and the water, it's not just you or your family that's getting sick, it's everybody like Cancer Alley. Um, how you put the information, the medical information together to advocate your case with your healthcare provider because a lot of the healthcare providers don't have a clue about chemical illness. They're gonna look at your colds and flu and they're gonna treat you with, you know, an antibiotic or something. That is not gonna work for a chemical causation. Um, So, um, and these things are really kind of geared to be, um, do it yourself, okay. Um, The one, uh, I'm going to skip some of this and maybe during questions I'll come back to it. But I just want to give an overview of the other project that sort of came out of the Exxon Valdez, which was um, that, hey, what the heck, Um, you know, corporations are, have hijacked our democracy, um, all this money, Um, it was, so I formed um, Ultimate Civics um, to basically start a grassroots movement to amend the Constitution, corporations are not <laughs> entitled to human rights. They're not persons in that regard. And money's not speech. And um, no sooner had I started it um, in, I think, um, August of 2009, the opportunity to came up to convene a meeting in California um, because Citizens United was coming down the pike. and we all the democracy orgs expected a bad, you know, an adverse outcome. So um, I was like, well, now's not really the time to write letters to the editor. Now's now's the time to organize. So we all came together and we co-founded Move to Amend. Um, And here I am looking at all these other groups and, you know, their long-term advocacy and democracy. And I'm like, whoa, what can I do here? What is, what can I do? So it's a match of my passion. And it's the biggest thing I can think of to take care of not take care of, but to bring the most love to the most people for the longest time. That's my sort of bar, okay? And what I decided was the children um, and civics education for kids. Um, And one quick story here. I mean, this is not normal civics education. This is what's wrong. This is the uh, ultimate civics has an interactive timeline that's modified of the original one from the Women's International League of Peace and Freedom with their blessing once they saw it was like, oh my God, Ricky, you made this into a teaching tool. Well that's what it needed to be made into. Um, you know, try colors and there's a on the alert, sorry, ultimate civics.org website, um, you'll see the um where you can just get the little four minutes of it, but it's like three colors and blue is um victories for humans and um yellow is discriminatory laws that have passed and orange is corporate rights were built up. Something orange and yellow tear down our t- democracy. Blue builds it up and you can see these giant cycles of time where that's all blue. And then it's nothing but a sea of orange and yellow. And it's been (laughs) nothing but a sea of orange and yellow for quite some time. Um, So, um, but anyway, it's a teaching tool. And I, uh, you know, the normal institutions don't, aren't really interested in this. So, um, but what I'm finding is curious things happen. Like for example, I had a call from a teacher um, elementary school teacher in the Unified Dis- School District of Los Angeles saying, do you have this scale down to fourth grade? And I'm like, no, why are you calling? And apparently after the big teachers' strike, um, that was amazing uh, in this LA district, um, a friend of mine, unbeknownst to me, called um, the leaders for that movement and said, for that union and said, so are you all gonna go back to teaching the same civics afterwards? And they were like, what do you have in mind? We've been combing for some alternative visions here on civics. And my friend said, try ultimate civics. And I didn't know that the LA school district had picked it up. Um, so it is possible to do this, especially with outreach and networking and working together. And that's that's the same message we've been repeatedly hearing at panels. So it's all free and online and you know, pretty much do it yourself, all the lesson plans for both middle and high school. So, okay. Thanks.
1: Okay. Thank you so much for Vicky. How are you doing, Christian?
3: You can you tell us a little bit
1: about where you're at?
4: Yeah, doing awesome. We're getting a bit of a rainstorm here. So if you lose me, it's because the light, I got a lightning strike, but uh, oh I'm del- yeah, I'm delighted to to be here, Jenny. Thank you for the invitation and Men and all the other partners for uh, for setting this up. And it's always a delight to be with my Colleagues Rochetta and and Michael even um, from afar and Ricky I've known your work for your work for so long you've been doing this and so effectively and been such a strong voice for so long so it's an honor to be to be with you as well um, I do I appreciate the question about um, the 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 kind of the physical setting and where we are here because I think our work is always you know strongest when it's really place based and so and every 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 part of this world is special and unique and wonderful in its own in its own way so. Um, I'm in Pensacola, Florida, so in the Panhandle, on ancestral creek lands, and part of this, what was once this great southern forest of longleaf pine that went from southeast Virginia all the way down to to east Texas along the coastal plain, Um, and here in northwest Florida we have really the biggest pieces of it left in the world. Um, And you imagine these, these huge pine trees um, with this open landscape beneath because of regular fire. And those were fires that came um, from lightning strikes. They were also fire, um, fire that came from Native Americans who introduced fire to help manage for game and, and such. Um, Today, those, those fires still occur, not as much, but um, they have to set them, you know, to manage the land. Um, But it was so open underneath there with these beautiful grasses and wildflowers that like the early settlers could actually take a wagon through there. And so we still have a lot of that forest here that comes down and meets this Gulf of Mexico that here in in northwest Florida, um, it can look like the Caribbean at times with this blue-green water and, the you know, contrasted with the white sand. And so, you know, you can tell a lot from the color of water. And so over where where Michael and Rochetta are, the waters that That gumbo right it's that dark and that murky but you know that actually has a lot more biological productivity so they they grow a lot more of the shrimp and the fish and the crabs and such than 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 we do. Um, And that points out really kind of how our economy is over here in Florida, which is it's a tourism based economy it's a resource based economy and so many places really do have a resource based economy and our economy historically in Northwest Florida, Pensacola specifically, first it was lumber, right? We had this huge surge of cutting all the trees, you know, in the late 1800s. Um, and we were, you know, number one in the, in the world for a while, but you can only be number one for a short period of time when you're cutting all your trees, right? Because you're not doing it sustainably. Um, and then we moved on to red, to red snapper until we fished those out. Um, and they're only starting to come back some now. And that's a constant fight about how much we're going to let, you know, fishermen take of that. Um, And then we moved on to the tourism, which, again, is a resource-based economy. People come here because, um, at at least expecting that the water is going to be clean and the the sand is going to be white and it's going to be a healthy place to to be. Um, It's also very wet here. I mentioned it's raining. We get 63 inches of rain a year. We're surrounded by swamps and marshes and all these productive places, but it is very, very wet, and it can be a harsh place to live from that with with flooding and and, and such. Um, but it's a, it's a spectacularly beautiful place. Culturally, we really are more like Alabama, right? So Florida, people think of as, you know, palm trees and, and golf courses and Disney World. And we have a little bit of those things here, but, uh, but not so much. Culturally, we really are much more like Alabama. We're much more conservative. Um, this is the part of Florida that you could argue gave George Bush the presidency back in 2000 because we're actually in central time. And most of Florida is in eastern time and they had already counted and they they had already you know called the state for 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 George Bush and they hadn't counted the votes up here yet which came in much more for him. So that's a little bit of what it's uh you know what it's like up here. Um I I, I love it. It has all of its you know special charms for sure and ch- and, and challenges. Um so I think you know about healthy golf interestingly um maybe to distinguish us from some groups, we do what I call science-based advocacy. So we let the science guide us. And I think we also clearly do, you know, community-based advocacy as well. And you heard that from Rochetta and, and, and Michael for, you know, for sure. Um, the Just Transition work that I'm fortunate to participate in, and that that's going on all across the Gulf Coast through the Gulf South for, for Green New Deal, which really was started by the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy, and it's an amazing movement, just unbelievable people um, in in every state. And I mostly work with the folks here in in Florida. Um, And, you know, around energy, what's interesting, the contrast from Florida and all the other states, first of all, Florida is the only state that doesn't have offshore drilling, right? And since we're, and since we don't have offshore drilling, we don't have all that petrochemical industrial stuff on land. And so what, what um, my colleagues deal with over in Louisiana and Texas are just these awful nasty you know egregious targets that are affecting the fence line communities and the people living right right next to those places and we don't have um we don't quite have those kinds of same targets here and I guess I'm, I'm I'm fortunate for that so it's a little bit more um subtle but we know that Florida is being affected by climate change as much as you know any other state with our shorelines drowning and it's already hot here and it's only getting hotter um but much of our work around um around just transition is around clean energy, because with all the other Gulf states being in sta- states where they, they're drilling, it's really, it's much harder to have that conversation when so many people are working in that industry. It's a little easier. It's not e- easy anywhere, but it's easier to have it here, I think, uh, around clean energy because of uh, because we're not so invested in the, in the oil and gas and all that. Now, that being said, what we do deal with was a lot of issues with corporate control. Um, Like, you know, unless you live in like a place like, I think Michigan and Texas, you don't really get to choose your who provides your electricity. And so we have a new electric company here in Northwest Florida that took over from an old one, and it's Florida Power and Light, which is one of the biggest they're under this one called next era It's one of the biggest in the in the world. And they have brought with them just unbelievable tactics in how they do things. Just, you know, the last one wasn't particularly nice either, Um, but they're just they've been brutal with how they how they do things. Um, they, They gave us a giant rate increase in January. People really suffering tremendously, you know, during the pandemic. And then they had this massive rate increase and they didn't even have a public hearing in our community on it. Um, they have pretty much get their people appointed to the Public Service Commission in Florida that's supposed to be regulating them, and that's the just part, right, of a just transition is that 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 power company is moving more and more toward, I say renewable energy, they have a big natural gas plant here in Pensacola, but now called the Clean Energy Center, and we've had to educate people, it's mostly fracked natural gas, it's coming from over there in Louisiana and Texas and such, and that's not clean energy. Um, So renewable energy is clearly the term and they're moving in that direction. But, you know, the just part is not sticking it to the customers on that, not overcharging them. You know, I think an an analogy or an example is all during the pandemic, we all know we all have favorite local business owners in our communities. And I heard time and time again, local business owners during the pandemic and during this inflation crisis now, um, have said, you know what, our costs have gone up, but we're not going to, we're not going to pass those on to our customers because we we love our people and we're going to, we're going to make a little bit less money during this period, you know, we're fine and we can get through that. Well, that's not what Florida Power and Light did, right? That's not what the big utilities do. They keep going for rate increases, you know, so that they can maintain those consistent, um, consistent profits for their investors. So we've been very engaged around that. Um, working here a lot with the city of Pensacola. They've actually looked at municipalizing their utility and boy, that Florida power light really came in and fought 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 against that. But um, you know, if you know about that, there's like 33 cities in Florida that have a publicly owned utility. And you think about how much better that is because we actually have access to the decision makers. It's our city council if we went in that direction and we can go down there at any time and meet with them and interact with them versus this these five mysterious people in Tallahassee that we never get to see. Um, that are point, appointed by the governor, that are supposedly regulating these utilities. And so there's a lot to be said about that local control. And so we're we're look, trying to look at that, um, see if we can do that municipalization here in, in Pensacola. That's been a big fight. And, you know, it, it seems like every week we learn something new about how dirty um and bad this utility company is right now it's just been reported in the news a story they wrote yesterday one of the reporters that they don't like they've been paying people to follow him and they were following him he actually came to pensacola he was on vacation with his girlfriend and they've got all these accounts they followed him around i mean it's just incredible dealing with these kinds of corporations and unfortunately it's what's happened with things like New citizens united and that incredible power that these corporations have so um we're also working more and more on you know like with the utility company and even our local governments we really want to see them um help people we- do weatherization so making and conservation so that their own homes you know you, especially for um lower income communities you know your electric bill your, your your utility bill is a much larger part of your it takes a much bigger piece of your income and we have a lot of homes that need to be weatherized and yet you know, here in Florida, they're talking about they got this huge boost of weatherization funds from Congress um, during the pandemic. And they're saying they're not even equipped to really push that money out of the communities the way they should be. And they think they're going to have to send a bunch of it back to send it back and not be able to use it, which is just so frustrating. You know, so we're doing everything we can to try to keep that from happening and make sure that money does get out into the into the community. So um, and I I'll, and I'll appreciate Michael mentioning it because I always try to mention it in every every conversation now. Um, folks, our economic system has to change, you know, because every issue we deal with, um, if we don't change that, you know, we have a system with, with the capitalist system that we have, where it just values endless growth, endless expansion, endless consumption, and we live in a finite world, and that just can't continue to to happen. And even though Healthy Gulf doesn't necessarily have a formal policy about what kind of economic system we have, I think um, I always try to talk about it more and more now every chance that I get, because we've got to make that, that, that shift as well. I think that's ultimately part of the part of a just transition as well. So um, I'll leave it there for the moment and look forward to some, some questions later. So.
1: Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, we agree with you there. Um, and and I believe it's our next panel that will delve more into that, um, that topic. Um, I, some of y'all have already touched on it, but can you share with us some hurdles that you have faced personally? Um, Christian just mentioned some, especially coming up directly against oil companies um, or the industry in general. And we know that it is the most powerful industry on the planet, um, hands down. So, you know, what hurdles you face personally and in your work um, with surviving in this current historical moment where we're at, you know, literally looking down at the next extinction. Um, I'll Anybody, open that up.
0: Maybe call, call us. Because I feel sure. like we have something good to say about this one.
1: Okay, go ahead. Please do. Oh,
0: me start? Okay. <laughs> uh, to be honest, you know, I feel like the person on this panel who lives right next door to the worst excesses of the oil gas and petrochemical industry is Rachetta. I live like maybe 30 to 40 miles away from the nearest plant. So I would pass it over to her and have her open us up.
2: OK, so um, thank you for that. Um, like I said, I work in Swiss Louisiana as a whole, but I live right now Sulphur Louisiana. And Sulphur has its name, of course, because of the um, the, the Sulphur that was here. And, um, and it is full of petrochem industry. I now live in a FEMA trailer. Um, and that's a, a trailer that was provided by FEMA after disasters. Um, I've been here for a year now, um, which was, I didn't get in the trailer until a year after the storms had hit. So before I moved in the trailers, I was living in a hotel in Houston, driving back and forth um, to come home every day because my house uh, was destroyed by hurricanes, Laura and Delta. And um, so where I live in Sulphur, we have Indorama, we have uh, Westlake Chemical, we have um, Liondale Basil, um, Firestone, um, and it's very close to Sassol, PPG, Phillips 66. So those are the industries that are right here in my backyard. When I open the front door, I see the flaring from those industries. Every day drive, I drive past them to bring my children to school. Um, I drive past them to go to work. I can literally walk past them um, on my trail that I walk on every day so I live right in, next to the industry now where my home was before it was destroyed I lived in Westlake and I had been living in Westlake for nine years and that was right behind Sassall and um and all those facilities uh, Cameron LNG is about um if I go across the ferry it's about um, 30 to 45 minutes away from me um, and the site for Driftwood and Commonwealth all those sites are uh, 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 less than 30 minutes away so I am surrounded by industry I see industry every day and that's why I fight this fight because I live in this community I'm not you know somebody who parachuted in and decided I wanted to fight against industry I live here my six children live here, my family lives here, and I want my kids to continue to be able to live here and enjoy what we love about Louisiana. It's a sportsman's paradise, so we love to fish, we love to hunt, you know, and I want them to be able to enjoy those things without worrying about, you know, um, not being able to eat the fish because it came from water that's polluted by industry or not being able to go on certain lands and explore and um, visit the Creole nature trail because industry is buying up all of the land and and buying so many acres like with driftwood. Um, And so that's why I fight this fight Um, and, and, and working in this community and being from here there's a lot of resistance because industry is all you see. We're surrounded by industry. So again, there's that false perception that that's, you know, they provide all of the jobs, they provide infrastructure, they support things because they put their names on everything and people have that false sort of perception. But what I do is take people on on toxic tours, take them on environmental justice tours so they can see. if we have all this industry, in our communities, why are our communities struggling? Why don't our children have what they need in the schools? Why don't we have grocery stores in these neighborhoods? Why in the city of Sulphur is the water coming out of the faucets looking like a pot of gumbo? Why is it that um, in places like Westlake, across the street from Phillips 66, you have a neighborhood of uh, predominantly Blacks whose homes still have blue tarps. And none of those uh, industry executives from Phillips 66 have come down and walked across the street to their neighborhood to say, how can I help you? What do you need? And then when you drive around um, the parking lot of those industries and you're looking at the license plates, most of what you see is Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Texas. You barely see any Louisiana tags. And the Louisiana folks that do work there, the local people who do work in industry, they work for the contract companies. They don't even work directly for the site. And so it's just highlighting things like that and connecting the dots for folks so that they see, you might see industry, but what is industry doing for you? And if they're not doing anything for you now, why do we need any more? And also connecting the dots for folks who, you come into contact with who tell you things like you know my dad died from cancer and you get to asking them questions like well was there a long history of cancer in your family did your grandfather have it you know um did, did your great grandfather have it and asking them those questions and getting them to see that this isn't something that was uh necessarily hereditary your father may have received cancer from working in the industry or y'all living next door to industry and helping people to ask those sort of questions. Um, and I do that by, you know, having a community meeting once a month um, where I allow community members to talk about the issues that's important to them and, and they, they lead the meetings and, and just asking them what they need and generally asking people, how are you doing and waiting on them to answer and listening for the answers and then asking how can i help you with that and doing those things fulfilling those promises for folks and then that's how you earn people's trust and you get them to fight and advocate for themselves so that's what i'm doing every day like i always say i don't represent any agency organization i'm just Rochetta, a single mom of six who lives in this community who wants this community um to be around you know in the future this is not a single person fight this is not this is not even a a single race fight this is we have to we have to make sure we talk about race because race is what got us here but we do know especially the folks on this call we know that um we're not good until we're all good you know um until black folks black and brown indigenous people are good and our sacred land is protected and and the the land that our ancestors fought and bled for is protected, for us to be able to enjoy in the future, none of us are good. You know, we see things happening every day, just like yesterday with the overturn of Roe versus Wade. We are tired, you know, um, when things like that happen, you get discouraged, you get tired, but we continue to get up and fight. And, And sometimes you feel like, you know, you don't see those tangible wins, you can't touch a win because we're fighting industry every day, but yet I walk out my front door and I still see smokestacks. I still see flares. I pass by industry every day. And so sometimes I'm like, what am I doing? It's still here. But then when you get on calls like this and you see more than 50 people on the call and you do things like the toxic tour that I just did this weekend, and you have folks coming from California and Texas and Washington, DC to come to our neighborhoods and see what's going on, then you know that you are doing something that's worthwhile and that folks are watching. And so like I I continue to say, just continue to support us. Trust the frontline folks who are in the communities, trust the people who live in the communities that's doing the work, support those folks, give them funds, give them resources and, and trust them enough to know that they are doing what's needed in their community with those funds and those resources. I hope I answered the question. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much. Your, perspe- your insight and perspective is very powerful and very important. Um, would anybody else like to um, speak to hurdles that they're dealing with in their communities and in their in their lives? And then we're going to open it up for questions after that.
3: Why don't we all just speak to it really quick? And uh, Michelle, yeah, you were right. I was right with you with having Rochetta first. I'd like to go last. <laughs>
0: Okay, well, I will go next. It's Michael also, but it's a- comment Michael, sorry. Right? No, I have real creative parents. It, it is what it is. But um, yeah, to speak to, you know, to add on to what Rochetta said, I think she really spelled it out wonderfully, but in Louisiana, and I, I don't know where everyone on the call is from, because we're coming in from across the country, but in Louisiana, we're up against a lot. And I think one of the main things that we're up against is the lack of community and civic education. And I think that's an intentional thing that's happened. It's an intentional strategy from our elected officials, also from our business. Uh, business leaders to keep us not knowing about the impacts of pollution, but also not knowing how to get engaged and involved in the civic process and transition our economy and our political system to something that's better for for all of us. And even though we here in Louisiana, I mean, as Rochetta mentioned with the Roe v Wade decision, we're dealing with it first and worse or the canary in the coal mine, for a lot of things, whether that's climate change or just political instability, um, the lessons that we have here can be applied across the country. And most people across the country are dealing with these same issues, where they feel like they're getting, they're voting, you know, they're they're doing the right thing, they're making donations, but they're not necessarily seeing change happen in their communities. And I think part of that is because we are not. Organized in our communities. And especially for folks that are marginalized, whether you're Black or Brown and Indigenous, whether you're a woman, whether you're queer or whatever the case may be, it is so important for us to get organized into institutions that are bigger than just one voice. And that's the way that we can really make change. And so it is very difficult. It is very difficult to organize against to organize in the belly of the beast against the oil, gas and petrochemical industry. Even as we're getting hit by all these hurricanes caused by the very industry that's torn up our coast that has dredged pipe dredge canals and installed pipelines all across the coast of South Louisiana that makes us more vulnerable to storms. It's very difficult. But I do think that there's a change that is happening right now And it's incumbent on all of us and all the people who decided to take a couple hours out of their Saturday to join this call because they care about something bigger than themselves. They care about the future of their children and the future of their community. No matter where you come from, it's incumbent on us to get organized in our communities and to start making change. Um, And yeah, it's not just gonna be enough to vote every election. We're gonna have to do some more serious work, Mm -hmm. but everybody has a role to play. Everybody can play a part and while it is difficult to organize against the oil and gas industry in the third largest energy producer in the united states people are starting to see as these hurricanes accelerate as they get more intense as we deal with the worst impacts of the climate crisis that some people say is 10 years down the road but in the gulf coast we know it's here right now we will make a change because it's out of necessity to fight for the future of our of our children and our families
1: Absolutely. Um, thank you. <laughs> it kind of left me speechless there for a second. Well said. Uh, Christian, did you want to weigh in on that?
4: Yeah, so, you know, you asked about hurdles, and I would just mention one that um, always challenges me with my work here, um, working so much around around climate change and such. Um, as we've talked about, you know, Rochetta and, and Michael, Rochetta especially, are in those places where you have these big, ugly, nasty targets, right? The big petrochemical plant that's spewing this nasty stuff out. Fortunately, I don't have that here, but it can sometimes make it a little harder to tell the story when you don't have something that's so apparent. I mean, fossil fuels are killing us, no doubt about it, but it's a little harder to tell the story and make it tangible in a place that doesn't have those types of of facilities around. Um, I think storytelling is part of that, and that's something more and more that I try to add into my work. People's stories are powerful. It's how human beings was for thousands of years. That's how we have moved traditions and information and things forward, right, is through through storytelling. So I'm trying more and more to make sure that that's, um, you know, that 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 is part of my life and part of my part of my work. Um, You asked about how to survive in this moment, and I think, um, you know, what I I would talk about personally is just making sure to, you know, take care of yourselves. We all work really, really, really hard, and um, the work can overwhelm us at times and sometimes progress not being made the way we want it to be made. Um, you know, I've had a couple of little bouts with depression in my life that I've, you know, been able to work through eventually, but I also, you know, come to understand that, I mean, me as a white male have enjoyed a tremendous amount of privilege and, um, healthy golf, our organization's been doing more and more work around um, around these issues. And, and I've really learned a lot through that. Um, we're you know we're reading together, we're discussing these these issues, diversity, equity, inclusion, and and I learned a lot from my my colleagues who've had to deal with things you know that I've never had to deal with because of the, the you know the privilege that I've that I've in, that I've enjoyed that, I, that I've had. Um, and and I can't help but think of it actually in this image here, if you look over my left shoulder, there's a portrait of a man named Clyde Kennard, you know, and we all, we all arrange our personal spaces in ways that, that enriches us and inspires us, and somehow I had stumbled across Clyde Kennard's story. He was a, a civil rights activist um, in the early 1960s in Mississippi, he was absolutely brutalized, not by a bunch of crazy racist people in the community there. It was the state of Mississippi that actually framed him for a crime that he did not commit, and he went to jail, and you know, and, and, and when I first encountered the story, I'm, I'm reading through it, and it's just tragic, and then he got terminally ill with cancer in, in prison, and so they let him out. And what struck me more than anything else was that here was this man who had been brutalized by the state of Mississippi, became terminally ill in prison, was now released, and the photo you see of him right upon his release when he's seeing his sister for the first time in five years this huge smile on his face. This man that's been absolutely brutalized by the system and has three months to live. And you know, from that, I, I took the inspiration. I mean, no matter whatever happens to me, I've never had anything, and probably never will have any kind of a challenge even close to that. And in the face of that, Clyde Kennard had a big smile on his face despite that. So um, take care of our take care of yourself for sure, and you and you can get get through this. So.
1: Okay, hey, Ricky. I'm going to give you a chance to do that. And then we'll take some questions from
3: the yep. chat. So I'm going to be quick because questions are great. Um, so uh, this is sort of an embarrassing moment, but it's also like, uh, I'm sure you all know this. I mean, I did for one year, I was down in the Gulf Coast States and um, I was invited into Bindale, Mississippi as one of the communities, um, pretty much a uh, black community. Um, And I went without, I mean, I stay in people's homes. Um, It doesn't matter who or where. Um, I I learn a lot around people's kitchen tables. Um, But what I didn't think about was um, the racial situation. Um, And when a group of us from Bindale went to Loosedale to do some research, we got nothing but stairs, hostile stairs from white folks. And I was like, you know, God, this is like the 21st century. What's going on? And um, we went back to Bendale and that evening, the husband of our host, his truck came home in a wrecker. And um, I believed his story that he just got a little sleepy and ran off the road. And my partner who is from the Gulf Coast and is part indigenous, went up very quietly to him afterward and said, what happened? And he looked at this man and he said, I was run off the road because you folks are here. It's the white working with the black, which we know is how the Ku Klux Klan started. It started to target the white allies of the black folks. So that is one hurdle I didn't even think about. And I'm still sorry to this day that that happened. Um, At any rate, um, so that's, I'm, I'm much more aware of that. On the flip side, um, I was invited by, for the work that I had done down there um, somewhere in the middle of it. Oh, it was right during the fall elections when Trump first got elected, um, I was in Arkansas or wherever. Um, but the point is I got invited to the uh, NCP, NAACP state convention in Birmingham to share the toxic trespass material. And the consensus from that state convention was this is important. And we all need to learn this in our own separate chapters and the national needs to pick this up. And then Trump got in office and I went back to the Pacific Northwest area and I diverged into civics um, because I felt that was like the most important use of my time right then. Um, so there's a couple, just two things I, I, I wanna run by as like uh, places where I've heard we might be able to uh, bridge some, um, all the groups um, one is that challenge. other challenges, this, now I'm going to talk about two legal challenges, which are I think might be simpler to change than I, I think. So one is that OSHA, all right, okay, let me back this up and say that it, when there's a disaster, who are the workers Who that go? There are frontline guys, usually. There are community members, like the BP disaster took in residents of four different states to work that disaster. Well, guess what? The studies that are coming out are showing that, no surprise to you all, people of color, economically disadvantaged people are more vulnerable, Hello, to the oil chemical exposures and illnesses that result. Um, This has been reflected in low birth weights of kids. And I mean, it goes all the way down from reproductive to, you know, the cancers. So, um, so, the, there's an exemption right now. OSHA exempts colds and flu from recording and reporting. So it is exempting the very chemical illnesses that we need to record to prove that there is a problem. And I think this would help people in fence line communities as well as well our frontline workers for sure. But, you um, um, I'm, I was um, gonna take some steps on this and I think now I'm gonna open it up and make it be more petition-like. It's um, some letters of inter- I think there's easier ways to change this right now. Um, and so if you'll contact me on my website, Ricky at um, alertproject.org, and I'll contact you all too. But anyway, I think that we can bridge this with the unions because this is good for chemical plant workers too. This isn't just oil spills. Uh, to have this regulation changed and start getting these illnesses recorded and start pushing back the healthcare costs on the very industry that is causing them. Because the more healthcare, co- the more costs we can heap on the oil and gas industry right now, the quicker they'll fold. Um, I look at my work as sort of the back door of the of the climate justice movement. The front door is stop the offshore drilling, stop the pipeline, stop this, stop that. The back door is adding on the healthcare costs, adding on all these costs that are going to just like topple this monster. So. Um, so that's one thing that I think could be a bridge builder. And the second thing is, um, believe it or not, <laughs> um, these chemical dispersants that are sprayed on oil spills, number one, have to be refined. So it's coming out of the refineries too. But anyway, they're, they're terrible, okay? They're teratogens. They kill babies in the womb, dolphin babies, human babies, whatever. Um, they break down blood cells. That's why everybody was bleeding, hemorrhoids, nosebleeds, everything in the Gulf. Um, 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 so the laws are rigged so that dispersants are pre-authorized. However, since they're so toxic, they are not pre-authorized in coastal waters, in state waters, three miles out, more than uh, less than 10 meters deep, because there's not enough volume of ocean to dilute these toxic chemicals. Like that's supposed to be an excuse. Um, but. All right, good, they can't use them. Oh, unless the state has a letter of agreement. And the state has a letter of agreement, then they can be routinely used not only in oil disasters, but anytime, anytime. Um, So I think if we work this at the state levels to make it known how toxic this is, that could could work to getting this uh, externalized back to the industry uh, in state waters. Anyway, the cost of that. So, okay. Thank you all.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I'm loving these, these solutions here. Um, I'm gonna read a couple of uh, ideas in the chat and thank you for doing that work, Ricky. I know that you're um, working on suing to make that happen. Uh, Keon puts, speaking to the need of trust frontline communities. It's very hard to get it organized and take action in the midst of constant struggle to keep access to just our basic necessities, as Roshetta was um, alluding to. How can we make it worth our frontline neighbors' time and energy to get organized, take action and get engaged in a broader movement building? How can we do better to make our organization spaces more inclusive and more equitable?
2: I'll start off with that. I want to go back to what Dr. Ricky said about, um, you know, White folks who come into BIPOC communities to assist, and then they're targeted. I mean, that that target is what you see when you're there. But the the black folks who ha- or the indigenous folks who continue to live in those communities go through much more backlash when you leave. Um, and, and a lot of times it's with pen and paper. It's not even um, something you can see right off sometimes, but. And so I think to combat that and another thing that I've been saying across the, the, every, every platform is that you find the folks in the community who's doing the work and you empower them, you find frontline folks and you support those folks and you get the money because money Helps them to fight this fight because, again, if we're going to these homes of the folks who live in these communities and they have needs, we have to be able to meet their basic needs in order to get them involved in this fight. And so, we have to build coalitions from the communities. I'm on call after call after call, day after day, week after week, which takes away from the work that I'm doing in the community. But a lot of the times, the folks on the calls don't look like me. They're not the people from the community. So we have to make sure that the coalition building, the community building that we're doing is coming from folks in the community. If your organizations have jobs and those jobs are, are targeting certain communities, uh, organizing Lake Charles, organizer for Southwest Louisiana, or those folks should be coming from those communities. They shouldn't be sent from New Mexico or California or Texas. And so when you get the folks from the community to build coalitions and community from the inside out and you support them, that's how you get involved. You get involved uh, and and everybody has a part to play. And so if the the folks want to do, for instance, if they want to do op-eds or letters to the editors or if they want um, flyovers and you can provide those services, then you ensure that you provide it but you make sure that you're talking and including folks on the ground and frontline folks. It should never be a meeting when there's just the lawyers. It should never be a meeting when there's just the analysts. It should never be a meeting when there's just logistics. Fol- frontline folks need to be included in all conversations so that you ensure that you're meeting the needs of the community. Um, I, You can't come in my house and tell me what I need. No one knows my needs better than me. And so you go into those communities and ask the folks what they need. And none of us can speak for every community because all of our communities are different. Lake Charles in Southwest Louisiana is very different from Port Arthur. Port Arthur is very different from Brownsville. And Lake Charles in Southwest Louisiana is very different from Southeast Louisiana and the river parishes. And so you have to go into those individual communities. It can not be a cookie cutter strategy or one person speaking for the whole state of Louisiana, or one person speaking for the whole state of Texas. And we have to start uplifting voices that aren't necessarily uplifted. It's fine when you get the Sharon Levines, the John Beers, the Rochetta Ozans, because, you know, people know them, but there are other people with stories in those communities as well. And so we need to start finding those. And I think once we build those coalitions from the inside out, and you all support those, support those frontline folks. I, I think that's how the broader work gets, gets done. It, it, it moves from the inside of those communities, communities outwards to the larger organizations.
1: Absolutely, thank you. Um, I guess it's a pretty good time to talk about our Ask offer. Please put your organizations um, Cash app information, all of that in the chat so people can support the work you are doing on the ground. Um, I know that, uh, you know, there's a lot of more work that you're doing besides just healthy calls. Health, so please go ahead and put that in there. Um, let's see here, JD left um, a resource. It's a FYI resource to maintain conversations throughout and between uh, We the People and adding to what Christian had said. Um, and we will um, get these resources out to everybody from this panel and the rest of the panels, um, just so that we'll have a, a nice tidy resource for everybody to go to um, to find this. But let's see other questions. Uh, Lucille asked Christian, um, you mentioned economic uh, economic systems uh, have to change to address the environmental and social issues you've spoken about. Can you or anyone else share wh- exactly what you mean about that, and uh, to what and how?
4: Yeah, you know the the best way that I've seen so far to to visualize what that what that future looks like. Um, from a woman named kate rayworth and it's called donut economics okay so you imagine you know you all know what a donut looks like so um in in the in the you know out in the middle of the donut is that is 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 people who don't have um enough food to eat they don't have clean water um um they don't have access to good jobs right there's there's a place space of deprivation in, in the hole in the donut And then you move as you as people get access to the things that that we all need as human beings, we move into that sweet spot right the flesh of the of the donut. Um, If we move beyond that outside that donut just visualize that that's the place of global warming and and ozone depletion, and loss of species, and humans suffering from terrible health problems, from pollution, and all the other negative things. So the flesh of the donut is that sweet spot in there, and that's where we need to be. Um, and donut economics is just a good way to, to, to visualize that. Um, I, you know, I think one of the ways that we probably need to do this um, is really, you know, through, through, through tax policy, probably. When you look at how things happen in places like Northern Europe, where And again, I'm not really speaking healthy health doesn't have policies on this, you know, but certainly tax policy would be one way to do that where um, the money's got to come from somewhere and the wealthiest people have the money to give to that to help so that we have a society where people's basic needs are taken care of so nobody is in that hole in the middle of the donut, nobody should be there right everybody needs to be in that sweet spot where they have the medical care, they have clean air and water and they have all those things that that we need to live. Fruitful lives, but we don't shoot beyond that and go into that place of of, um, of unnecessary, you know, exploitation of the of the planet. So look up donut economics; that's a good way to to visualize it. Anyway,
1: excellent. Um, I think I want to, and I see you, Ricky. I'll let you open this up. But um, you know, as we're coming to a close here, we only have about just under 10 minutes. Uh, I want to thank you all for gathering with us, of course. And I also want to ask you, um, <clears throat> what can we do moving forward? What, what can we all do in pursuit of a more just world? I, I, you mentioned some things, um, but is there anything missing from that? Um, give us your perspective. What are some of the ways that change can be enacted? In, and of course, you know, funding is a big one.
3: I was, um, I've been inspired to say this for a while now, and that is that um, I wanna do a shout out to Healthy Gulf folks um, and Healthy Gulf the organization, um, because um, uh, you just signed on to yet another alert petition um, to EPA uh, um, to uh, force EPA. We, we've got EPA on the ropes right now with this um, disbursement use that is predominant Uh, EPA just passed some new rules that it can be unlimited, it can be in the deep sea, it can be on the surface, it can be everywhere, okay? But in our court victory, we had a little tiny victory in court uh, that changed the interpretation of the Clean Water Act, and that is that EPA has to update its national contingency plan, which governs dispersant rules based on current science. Well, there was a heck of a lot of... The dispersant use policies have all been based on industry theory and industry models in the past oh, they're gonna make the oil spill less toxic. There's gonna to be less oil coming ashore. Did anybody notice less oil coming ashore in 2010? You know, what is less oil, you know? Um, so it, it's all been theory. Well, now there's actually measurement-based studies and the epidemiology studies have come out and some of them I alluded to with women and children in Southeast Louisiana um, um, and the sort of the racial overtones, um, uh, the EJ overtones of who gets sick the longest and the first but also um, with the the rulemaking for this petition that our second part of our court victory. So the judge said, you have to update it, the rules based on current science. And we're gonna do just like Brown versus Board of Education. This is so bad for so long, 28 years, no new emergency response plan that you are now under court supervision to make sure this gets done. And I want it done by May, 2023 what the judge forgot to say, and base it on current science. So what's happened since the rule came out in 2015, which was eight years ago, is there's a whole bunch of new science, and it's all the science from the long-term studies that shows that there's long-term harm to wildlife, to people, to workers, to the residents, to everything. It's all there, but it's all after 2015. So EPA is trying not to use that current science. And that's what that petition that we all signed was about was, by the way, we want you to supplement your rule and use the new c- current science before you issue this in May, 2023. And those who signed the petition have now have standing in court to sue if EPA doesn't do it. So I wanna give a shout out to the Gulf, Healthy Gulf for stepping up and joining that. And um, I think for me, the future is honing in on some of these laws that other panels talked about. Yeah, we have the existing laws, at least they're ho- helping us stay things. I'm gonna focus on some of those because I think I fo- found the ones that are sort of underpinning oil industry operations um, and outsourcing or externalizing healthcare costs. And uh, that's what my work on that looks like. And I'm also developing an eighth grade civics unit for the entire semester on civics. So
1: Excellent, thank you so much, Ricky. Um, Michael, I want to give you an opportunity to answer that. And I see your hands up to Rochetta. Do you want to close us out on it?
0: Yes, Rochetta closing us out. Yeah, I'll be super quick. And (laughs) and this goes back also to uh, Kian or Kian's question around speaking to the need of trusting frontline communities and how it can often be difficult. So I've been organizing for almost 10 years. And what I have seen um, from a lot of organizations and a lot of just activists and organizers is that often, we feel like we have a very developed idea of the political situation and what needs to be done. So we're like A to B, and this is what we need to get there. But oftentimes when we come into communities with that assumption, we disregard the survival knowledge and the local, just like community expertise that a lot of these folks have. And just as Roschetta was mentioning how, you know, There's these situations where where, where white folks can come into communities being allies, but then the black folks that are dealing with the aftermath of that will continue to be targeted. A lot of the folks that we work with, they know exactly what's going on. They may just not have the tools to be able to get to a community solution. And so what does a community solution look like? I mean, I think the first and most important thing as an organizer is that You know, there's the 80-20 split, if y'all have heard about that, but that means that when we enter into a community or when we talk with folks that we've never met before, if we're organizing or doing movement work, we listen 80% of the time and we talk 20% of the time. And so our first job is to be educated by the very folks that we're hoping to work with and understand what their priorities are, what the issues they're facing are, and then help them kind of understand how that fits into the broader picture. Um, Because whether you're in South Louisiana or in Pensacola, we're all dealing with this climate crisis, we're all dealing with economic injustice. We all have to pay, you know, five to eight dollars at the pump so we know exactly what's going on. The, The matter is more to figure out how to get folks connected and to do organizing work that prioritizes what folks on the ground are dealing with, while also keeping our eye on the prize and the bigger picture. But I think, you know, it's always good to end any kind of meeting with a call to action or next steps about what folks can do to get involved in their local areas. And I think oftentimes we, we overlook the importance of just having basic conversations and basic human relationships and all organizing, all movements, no matter where they took place, no matter what point in history, they were based on relationships of respect and trust and community. And so I think the most important thing that every person on this call can do is to figure out how to go out to folks in their community, whether that's a family member, a coworker or a neighbor and ask them, what do you think is happening right now? What do you think needs to be done? And then connect that to what you're focused on and what you're working on, um because, I know Move to Mend isn't just focused on the climate crisis, but I'll just end by saying, you know, the climate crisis is one of those things where a lot of times people think it's abstract, but this is a crisis that is facing every single person on our planet. It's, it's a terrible evil beast that we're up against, but it's also an opportunity to connect every single person on this planet around a common line of solidarity, which is fighting for our future and fighting for our children and fighting for our land and our history. Um, and so there's a clear opportunity there. So the first thing you can do is just start talking to people in your community, listening to them more importantly, um, and, and talking to them about how they can get more involved in even just basic civic stuff, all the way to more uh, progressive uh, civic or climate action.
1: Civic to the action um, and listening, that, that's a thread that, um you know, Rochetta has uh, echoed throughout uh, what she shared with us. And I think that is so important. Um, Rochetta, did you wanna speak to that as well as we close out?
2: Yes, and so, you know, like Michael said, listening to us, trusting us, funding us, and most importantly, coming to our communities and seeing what we live through and what we fight against every day. Because it's one thing to hear about it, but it's another thing to be here and to breathe in the air that we have to breathe. And so on that note, I want to end with a little uh, poem that I wrote and it's entitled Breathe. And it's, it's because of, you know, where I live and what I deal with. So take a deep breath, just breathe. Sounds easy, don't it? Well, easier said than done. When the air you breathe in your very lungs is the same air that will have you on the run to the ER without insurance, waiting for hours with no assurance, gasping for air, needing water but not from the faucet no that's not in order water to live but you can't drink not from your own kitchen sink the kitchen sink attached to the house in the house in your little corner of the south where you can't afford to pay your rent because on the lights your money was spent and now you're sitting here in a waiting room thinking you'll be dying soon all because you decided to breathe breathe Sounds easy, don't it? It used to be not long ago when you could walk out your back door, and yes, door, not door, you know the lingo. You could walk outside and see the trees, climb the trees, sit under their leaves. That's before your neighborhood was taken over by a new Marion town called LNG. Came to town with broken truths promising to better you, to make your life worth living, ha. But seems like you're doing all the killing, Promise you jobs, but you're still the cleaning lady. Promise you wealth, but you're still robbing Peter to pay Paul. Promise to uplift you, but you still fall. Fall short of welfare, Section 8, and food stamps, and now here you are in the ER. You've set up camp, waiting and waiting, all because you decided to breathe. And so I hope that you all took something from all of us folks here on the front lines and that you listen to us. I know you all are allies and a lot of times we're speaking to the choir. So again, I just want to thank everybody for being here and allowing me this opportunity.
1: Thank you. Somebody said to me recently if you, uh, that they speak, you speak to the choir so you can hear them sing. And um, I've taken that with me <laughs> and I've used it a couple of times because it really resonates. Um, thank you all so much. I think some of the strongest takeaways are relationship, building relationships, basic respect and trust. I hear resilience, fighting false perceptions, listening and getting involved and organized. We all have a role. Thank you all so much.